Father, uh, here we are gathered together and uh, we believe that you are with us. We believe that you can teach us and speak to us and even use us to represent Jesus to others. And this is the time, God, where we come really to kind of uh, reorient our thinking. It's a time where we come to remember and we come to gain perspective. And that happens to us as your spirit speaks to us. So would you speak to us? This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Lately, I've been reading a book. Uh, it's a really old book. It's a book written by a guy named Blaise Pascal in the 1600s. Blaise Pascal was a mathematician. Uh, he was a physicist, an inventor, a theologian, a philosopher. He was a child prodigy. He died in his 30s, but still uh, had a major impact, even though he didn't live that long. Blaise Pascal notes in a book that he wrote called Penses, which is what I've been reading, he notes that there are two things, two things that are absolutely indisputable, he says, indisputable. Number one, all people want to live the blessed life or the happy life. Everybody wants that. Everybody is looking for the key, the thing that will make them happy, make their life a blessed life. And he said, number two, the second indisputable thing is that all people live in a very wretched condition. Now by wretched, he doesn't use that word quite the way we would. What he means is they live in a broken condition. Everybody lives in a sinful condition. Everybody lives basically in an unhappy condition because they don't get all the things they think they need to make them happy. And uh, this is true, he said, because of something the Bible calls sin. It's just true of everyone. He says sin is everywhere. It's out there in the world, outside these walls. And here's the other part of that bad news. It's also right here. It's in here as well. Sin produces all kinds of evil out there as well as right here, in here as well. And he says, this fact is indisputable, the wretchedness of man. And of course, we look around us today and I think that's still pretty indisputable. Governments oppose people, amen? <laughs> I think they do. Yeah, sometimes here our government feels oppressive, but in other countries, we see it even more vividly. Nations war against nations, militarily, economically, right? Couples call it quits. They just can't make it work. They get a divorce. Children rebel against parents. Parents do a bad job of the parenting process. Friends don't get along. They stop being friends. We see it everywhere in so many different ways. And then there's the really awful stuff, stuff like shootings in Las Vegas. Remember that? Schools being shot up. Children committing suicide. All this stuff is the ultimate result of sin and evil. Evil is a, it's an interesting word. It's a word that doesn't get used a lot today. It almost, when you hear the word evil, it almost sounds Victorian, like yesteryear, right? A little melodramatic, a little outdated, uh, maybe something that's not too scientific. We're not sure what to do with a word like evil. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, um, He's a scholar, he's a philosopher, he was also a Jesus follower. He headed up the philosophy department at the University of Southern California for many years. He wrote a fabulous book uh, called Renovation of the Heart. And uh, in that book, he tells this story about a conference that took place shortly after the shootings just up the street at Columbine High School. This was a conference in Aspen, Colorado. 
And it was a conference to discuss the topic of evil. What an interesting place to discuss the topic of evil in Aspen, Colorado. And ironically, at this conference with all these brilliant scholars uh, and some philosophers who gathered there, he said only one or two of the scholars present believed that there was any such thing as evil. Wow. Hmm. In fact, he said they simply could not conceptualize the evil to be seen flourishing so abundantly all around them at the end of the 20th century. Just, just couldn't conceptualize it. In our day, with our constant media coverage, we've learned to kind of tune out the ceaseless beat of the drum of evil. I mean, constantly news reports of hurricane destruction, deaths because of that. Murdered reporters who wander into an embassy and go out in apparently bags. Drug cartels, sex trafficking, child abuse, terrorism, shootings. All of this in a country already painfully divided along political lines. It's almost too much. And so we learn to develop ways where we can kind of tune it out or at least put it in the back, uh, on, on the back burner. Did you know that this month marks the one-year anniversary of the Las Vegas shooting? The worst mass shooting in the history of our country? Uh, most of us, many of us, I bet, have nearly forgotten that we've moved on. We've kind of put it out of our minds. And the truth is we have to because another one's gonna happen tomorrow, today, who knows? That's how used to this thing of evil we've become, I think. Now, in light of all this question, do you have, do you have a view of life that enables you to live with hope in a world full of evil? Do you? Or do you just kind of walk around whistling in the dark, pretending that that evil doesn't exist, pretending it's not real, hoping that the evil out there will just never actually come close enough to touch your life or hoping that the evil in here is something that you can cover up, something you can manage? Let me ask you some other questions. These are actually bigger questions. These are kind of the overarching question around evil. What is evil? Where do you think evil comes from? Do you think evil will one day triumph over good? If not, why not? Can evil be overcome? How are you and I supposed to live in a world where evil constantly, consistently wrecks so much havoc in us and out there? You know, the Bible and Jesus in particular, we're very familiar with the subject of evil. The Bible says that evil is, it's to will, to desire what is bad for other people. At base, that's what evil is. It's to will and to desire what's bad, what will hurt other people. Love, on the other hand, is to will what is good for others. Ultimately, it's to, it's to desire for them that the will of God be done in their lives. Evil is the reverse of that. It's to will what is bad for them. The Bible says, of course, you're all familiar with this, 1 John 4, God is love. His kingdom, as we've been learning in recent weeks, is the the sphere, the place where the will of God is being done. His kingdom above all else is a kingdom of love. To indulge evil, to choose evil, is to oppose the kingdom of God. 
precisely. And that's why the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray says what it says. He said, when you pray, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the best good for every person always. God, please make up there, come down here. And in that prayer, Jesus also said, when you pray, also say this, deliver us from evil or the evil one, as some translations translate it. Now, understand evil is different than psychopathology. It's different than having mental health problems. I mean, although of course evil is mentally unhealthy, that's a fact. Evil doesn't just happen to us though, you understand. It also happens in us. The Christian thinker Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book uh, a long, long time ago called The Sickness Unto Death. And he talks about how evil can actually progress in a person. Uh, Somebody suffers pain. They suffer hurt. They get bullied. They get mistreated. They get abused. And they brood over it. They turn it over and over and they become obsessed with what has happened to them. And this pain consumes them until uh, it becomes what Soren Kierkegaard calls demonic rage. That's his term for it. And at that point, the person doesn't even want to be delivered from this pain because the pain has actually come to define them. It is now their identity. Their being the victim of mistreatment from others is what makes them superior. It makes them better than others and gives them permission to judge others and inflict pain on others, you see. Kierkegaard says this is how evil can take possession of a person. And he says that when we do evil to another person too, we prefer to do it secretly. We prefer to do it in a hidden manner. But the truth is, Nothing of consequence ever stays hidden. Good or evil has a way of rippling out and affecting others all around us, much more than we often expect it will. That is the nature of kingdoms. All kingdoms have consequences. The idea of kingdoms is the biblical word for systems of personal influence. You have a kingdom, I have a kingdom. We influence people around us. So in my kingdom and in yours, because we live in a fallen sinful world and we are fallen and sinful, we impact other people all the time, sometimes for good and sometimes for evil, for bad. The line between good and evil runs right through the center of my spirit and your spirit. We all make choices all the time without even being aware of the fact that we're doing this. Choices to to brood over some wrong that was done to us. Choices to clutch on to something of that nature, to hide our sin and the bad stuff we do to other people. And then we justify it, not confessing our sin, not making things right, not seeking restoration and reconciliation with the people around us. And we find ways to hide from doing the things we know we should and to hide the things we do that we know we shouldn't. And and this evil, this sin in us just continues to grow and compound and it can take control of us if it's ignored, if it's not dealt with properly. About the best our culture can do for the problem of evil, the problem of sin inside us, is our culture suggests that education will fix it. Education. 
Our culture hopes that education, getting right information, will be the key to transforming us. And of course, education is generally a very good thing. Wouldn't dispute that. But I know a lot of well-educated people who choose to do evil all the time, all the time. We've had some startling revelations around this in in, uh, this past year. I mean, just in one industry in the United States, um, there are all these individuals who have been kind of targeted and fingered and pointed out as being sexual abusers. I mean, Kevin Spacey, Dustin Hoffman, Ben Affleck, Richard Dreyfuss, Harvey Weinstein, and the list is much longer. Wow. It was hidden. Not anymore. You see, Jesus and the biblical writers say that our great problem is not ignorance. These people, they're not ignorant people. Some of them are very, very bright. Jesus says our problem is not ignorance. Our problem is is something inside us. It has to do with our heart, our spirit, that core of who we are. The scriptures tell us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That's the really, really bad news. It's not only deceitful and broken and can be selfish and self-serving and hateful, but it's beyond cure. Who can understand it? You see, out of our heart, we make decisions. Many of our decisions are self-serving, are unkind, can be greedy, can be judgmental of others. Our problem is not the intellect. It's the heart. It's the will. And we, uh, we, we will the bad for other people so that we can get ahead of those people oftentimes. Even when we know we shouldn't, we do it. You know, Brett was up here last week preaching and teaching, and he was confessing the blackness of his heart. I mean, a little thing like his truck getting broken into and he doesn't want to show mercy. He doesn't want to be a peacemaker. Uh, He was looking for ways to to get uh, revenge on that person. We ought to fire him. (laughs) But at least he's being honest. What do we do? (laughs) I'm just like Brett. I broke into his car. Don't tell him. (laughs) Who's going to deliver us from this problem? It's a real problem. It was a problem that the Apostle Paul had. The Apostle Paul very honestly says this, when I want to do good, evil is right there in me, with me. For in my inner being, I, I delight in God's law. I know what's right, he's saying, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members beyond cure. What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That is, in fact, the million-dollar question right there. Who can? I mean, who will? Who's going to rescue me from this very serious, unsolvable problem of sin and evil that's, yes, out there, but it's also in here? I'll tell you, friends, only a leader, only a thinker who is able to account for and explain the problem of evil, who can tell you where it comes from, what it is, and guarantee a hope that we will not be overcome by evil. Only that kind of leader is worthy to be followed. 
And you know what? We believe in this church that Jesus is simply unrivaled when it comes to handling the problem of evil. There's nobody like Jesus when we're discussing this thing of the problem of evil. The apostle Paul knew this too. I mean, that passage I just read a moment ago, he goes on and he concludes that that little section by saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, he's saying Jesus is the solution, the only solution he was able to find. And I might add me too. The problem of evil out there, the problem of evil in here, right in here, Jesus, the only solution I know of. A little later in that same letter that Paul wrote, he talks about how we should handle the evil, the evil out there that comes our way and attacks us. And he says this, he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. That, that would be that demonic rage that Kierkegaard talked about. You harm me, I brood on it, I think about it, I plan revenge. Well, Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, be peacemakers. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, God's judgment. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, love him, serve him precisely the way that Jesus loves and serves you and me, which is relentlessly. Jesus relentlessly serves and forgives and loves you and me. Overcome evil with good, Paul says, precisely the way Jesus overcame evil with good. You see, this is how the kingdom of Jesus marches forward. This is how the kingdom of Jesus conquers evil and the evil one. This is how a Jesus follower overcomes a world that is filled with evil and even his or her own world. The apostle John said this, the apostle John said, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. That, that's what he's talking about. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You see, our faith in Jesus is what overcomes the world. Our trust in Jesus, our dependence on Jesus, our imitating and following Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world, John says? Only he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. That's the only hope for the solving the problem of evil. So you see, if it's evil in us that we're battling, we do what the apostle John tells us to do. We don't hide it. We don't keep it secret. John said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Change is possible if we deal with our sins properly, you see. If the evil in us is brought out into the open, there's hope for change. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I mean, that's the objective, that's the goal, that's even possible with Jesus' help. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. Imagine that. When you sinned, here the, before you got here this morning, Jesus was speaking to the heavenly father on your behalf about your sin. 
But if anybody does sin, he says, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's, of course, what the cross is all about. God is pouring out on Jesus the punishment that you and I deserve so that our sins can be forgiven. And Jesus willingly accepted that punishment that I deserved. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Amazing, amazing truth. You see, if it's sin in us, we own it. We confess it. We receive forgiveness by taking that sin to Jesus. We embrace Jesus' power then to work change in our lives. If it's sin or evil out there coming our way, impacting our life, bullying, sickness, injury, insult, persecution, even death. Remember, none of these things can separate you from the love of God. These things can happen to you. But friends, Jesus followers have been confronting these kinds of enemies for centuries and standing strong in the face of them, even overcoming them. See, the battle against evil is, it's real. It's very real. It's out there. It's in here. But we've been given exactly what we need to fight and to win the battle against evil. We have Jesus. Amen, anybody? Dang, y'all asleep. Do you understand that it is the church's job to fight evil? Understand other organizations, good organizations might do a lot of good. They might, they might uh, address poverty or try to address the problem of illiteracy or the problem of hunger. And, but, it, but it is specifically the church's job to battle evil. So when we fight those things like poverty or illiteracy or hunger or abuse or whatever it is, we're really doing it to battle evil. Let's be clear. Now, here's the weird thing. <laughs> um, the very fact that that sounds so old-fashioned, almost Victorian, out-of-date, melodramatic, the church's job to battle evil, right? I think it's just an indicator that the church has in some ways lost sight of its mission and calling. You see, when we tell people about Jesus, it's not so that they can get saved and go to heaven. We're battling evil, don't you see? The evil in them, the evil in the world around us. I mean, that's our mission. And so when we do those things, it's an indicator that the church uh, is taking the good news that there is a solution and it's not education. It's bigger than that. It's Jesus. There's a solution for the problem of evil. When we reach out on November 3rd, part of what we're doing, part of the reason we serve is we reach up, we worship, we reach in and connect with each other, but we reach out to others and we want to demonstrate the love of Jesus because the love of Jesus is what addresses the problem of evil. Now, just a clarification here. Let's let's be really clear where this battle against evil is fought. This is not a battle where we in the church are the good guys, right? And everybody else out there, they're the bad guys. No, you see, the battle is not just out there. I've said this a number of times now. I'm going to keep saying the battle is also in here. Uh, Solzhenitsyn said that the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of of every man, every individual. 
And that is why evil can't be overcome by evil. Evil cannot be overcome by hate. Evil cannot be overcome by force. It cannot be overcome by education, which is always the world's way. How is the battle fought? By faith, by trust in Jesus, with Jesus' love and Jesus' forgiveness and never, uh, Jesus' never-ending capacity for doing good to those who don't deserve it, even our enemies. That's how the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God marches forward. This is why Jesus said at the end of the Beatitudes, these remarkably upside down words. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, you're blessed because you're fighting evil. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those are strange words. They're strange because they violate the the mental map that most of us have about the world we live in, about reality. Generally, my broken, sinful, fallen mental map says to me, you know, if I'm going to live the good life, if I'm going to really be blessed, other people must like me and approve of me. And more than that, they must, they must boost my own sense of self-esteem. They must do what I want them to do. So, you know, my kids must get into the right schools where they earn the right grades, which they attribute to uh, my genetic uh, excellence and superior parenting, Right? If I want a spouse, I have to have one who's attractive and supportive and, oh yeah, why not doting? That would be good too. My boss needs to give me raises and lots of praise. My my friends need to sing my praises. My customers must buy my products. My neighbors should write me notes of gratitude just because they get to live near me, right? But then we run into reality. We run into people. And this is painful. It's like running into a glass door. Dallas Willard says that reality is what you run into when you're wrong. And sometimes the most important reality is the unseen reality. Am I right? You know, my mental map or my theory of reality is just wrong when it tells me I am who others say I am. It's just wrong when it says my value depends on what others think of me. It's just wrong when it says, I must get other people to do what I want them to do, or I must be treated the way I want to be treated, or life will just be unbearable, or I must have this or that person in my life, or my life will be meaningless. You see, when I think that way, my mental map is wrong. My theory of reality will actually hurt me. I'll walk right into the glass door. Jesus says, when evil comes your way, when people mistreat you or don't cooperate with your particular theory of reality, when they abuse you or they ignore you or they mistreat you or abandon you or don't like you the way you like them or they persecute you, Jesus says, blessed are you. Great is your reward in heaven. Now, what does that mean practically? What do we do with that? Well, that means, first of all, I have to learn to live with a kingdom perspective, 
a kingdom perspective. Because Jesus' kingdom, you see, is reality. His unseen kingdom is reality. It's here, it's now, and it's in the future. Most people, when they hear the word heaven, they, they think of something far, far, far away, distant at best, but fact is it's not. There was a woman named Hagar. She was desperately alone with her little boy. She was in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, and we're told that God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Turns out, turns out God was right there in the wilderness with her. Years later, if you know the story, Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. And uh, we read this, it says, then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Turns out God was right there, right there. Years later, again, a man named Jacob had a dream. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. In his dream, he had seen uh, angels uh, descending and ascending a ladder from heaven to earth, back and forth, back and forth, forth. And he saw God there and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You see, in every one of these passages, and there are so many more we could look at, heaven was right there. Because God was right there. And understand, this is Jesus' mental map. This is Jesus' theory of reality. He knew that his heavenly father was always right there with him, right there always listening, right there always giving him what he needed in any given moment. That is Jesus' mental map. Jesus said one time to his disciples, this is right before he was crucified. He said, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me alone, he says. And yet I am not alone for my father is with me. That's Jesus' mental map. He also said to his followers on another occasion, he said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. He says that even as he's teaching us to ask him, ask our heavenly father, but he wants us to know our heavenly father knows what we need even before we ask him. The point is just this, God is everywhere. God knows everything. The kingdom of heaven is right here, right now. Paul quoted a Greek poet one time speaking in Athens. He did this to describe God. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being, have our existence, you see. So yes, we live in a world filled with evil. There's evil all around us. There's even evil inside us. But we also live with a theory of reality, a mental map, if you will, that tells us we are never alone. God is right here with all of his power, all of his resources. See, that perspective should always determine our response to any given moment or any given situation. Are you with me? A daughter who's away at college writes home to her mom. This is what she writes. Dear mom, sorry I haven't written sooner. My arm is broken and my left leg too. I broke them when I jumped from the second floor of my dormitory when we had the fire. 
We were lucky. A young service station attendant saw the blaze and called the fire department. They were there in minutes, and I was in the hospital for a few days. Paul, the service station attendant, came to see me every day. And because I was, it was taking so long to get our dormitory livable again, I moved in with him, and uh, he's just been so nice. I must admit that I am pregnant. Paul and I plan to get married just as soon as he can get a divorce. I hope things are fine at home. Love your daughter, Susie. P.S. Mom, none of the above is true, but I did get a C in sociology and flunked chemistry, and I just wanted you to receive this news in its proper perspective. <laughs> Do you get this? Proper perspective is vitally important. How's your perspective? Jesus always had perfectly proper perspective, always. You know, Jesus was persecuted his whole life long. Herod tried to kill him when he was a baby. His family had to flee and head off to Egypt when he was very young. At Jesus' very first sermon, you can read this, Luke chapter four, uh, the congregation got a little bit offended and they wanted to stone him. Didn't go well. Daniel's going to preach for his first sermon here in November. Don't bring any rocks. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard. He was accused of being a glutton. He was called a half-breed. He was called a Samaritan. People said he was in league with the devil. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. The religious leaders who should have embraced him and become his most passionate, ardent followers instead condemned him. And the crowd mocked him and the soldiers beat him and the Romans crucified him. Has there ever been anyone who endured more insults, more slander, more hostility, more rejection, greater shame, deeper failure, more evil than this man, Jesus? The very same man who said, blessed are you. You see, we're told when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the crowds mocked him. It says the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. You hear the hatred in that? They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. I'll tell you, in that particular moment, Jesus didn't look very blessed. Hanging on the cross, everybody was sure he has had it now. He is crushed. He is finished. His movement is over you see, that's what Rome did to their enemies. And this is how the world operates. Somebody threatens you, you threaten them back. Somebody hurts you, you hurt them back. Somebody gets to you, you get them back. In Rome, when somebody threatened them, when somebody got in their way, they would execute them. They would hang them on a cross. And that was that. That was evil. That was the end of it. But not this time, not this time. What happened at Calvary has spread, is spreading all over the world. You see, Jesus didn't stay dead. Oops, who saw that coming? And this is why the apostle Paul, who's just taken up with this truth, he says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? I mean, death, when you die, usually has the victory. You ain't coming back, right? 
Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, everything is different now. Everything is different now because of Jesus. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, Paul says. Why? Because everything is different now. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, fully to living with the Lord, fully to imitating the Lord, fully to following the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain because everything is different now. Blessed are you in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when evil comes your way, when you're hurt and you're confused and you're perplexed, Blessed are you. That's the gospel of Jesus' kingdom, don't you see? He doesn't say, now that I'm here, you won't have any more problems. He doesn't say, hey, if you're a good Christian, everybody's gonna like you. What he says is, is if you're living in my kingdom by faith, you are no longer living at the mercy of what other people think of you, living at the mercy of how other people treat you, living at the mercy of your circumstances. None of these things can threaten your ultimate well-being with your heavenly father for all of eternity. Nothing can threaten that. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This world is a perfectly safe place for you to be. That is Jesus' claim, and it is not a naive one. It is the claim of a man who was crucified for crying out loud and came back from the dead. You see, this world is a perfectly safe place for you to be because of where God is and because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus is gonna do. Do you know what he's gonna do? You know what he's gonna do? He's coming back. That's what he's going to do. He's coming back. And when he does, he's going to make everything exactly the way it should be. You see, this is the mental map of a Jesus follower. This is the, the theory of reality that a Christian has. Living with this perspective, you understand, changes everything. You don't have to live thinking, hey, it all depends on me. It's all right here on my shoulders. No, it doesn't. It's not true. You don't have to hide in your sin. You could bring it out in the open and confess it and be forgiven and be changed. You don't need to judge others for their sin because that's not your job. That's God's job. You don't have to be afraid when evil comes your way because you have overcome evil in Jesus. You know, in 1955, there was a Sunday school teaching Jesus follower whose name you know. Her name was Rosa Parks, familiar name, right? She was told she had to move to the back of the bus because of the color of her skin. She said, no, I'm not going to. And they put her in jail. And that she got all kinds of threatening letters and, and death threats. And she lost her job just a few weeks later. She followed the Savior who said, you know what? This world can throw you in jail, but remember it's a perfectly safe place to be because they cannot separate you from me and my love for you. And she was used by God in that moment to inspire a nation. Later on, when she died at the age of 92, she was the first woman to lie in state at the Capitol Rotunda. First woman. 30,000 people got in line to pay their respects to this person who would not sit in the back of the bus. You see, she was living in a different kingdom. Do you see that? 
It made her fearless. She was living in a different kingdom. And you know what? We live in a different kind of kingdom too. We live in Jesus' kingdom. And so the evil out there and the evil in here, well, (laughs) Jesus has conquered and he will keep conquering it. So blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Really? Yeah. Yeah, really. That's the gospel of Jesus' kingdom. Pray with me. Father, this good news that we embrace, it runs so counter to everything that we see around us. It's a different way of living. It's a, it is a different kingdom. It's based on truths that are all wrapped in the life and the teaching and the resurrection and the, the death of your son, Jesus. And, and because of that, everything is different. And so we ask God that you enable us to have a a mental map, a view of reality that conforms with the kingdom that we live in. And we ask that because of that King, King Jesus, evil could be overcome in this world in which we live. People would see the kingdom of Jesus lived out in us. Please, Father, would that be true? We ask this in his name. Amen.